Now as we transition to our teaching time, uh, I'll uh, invite you guys to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 9, and I'm also going to invite Renee to come up for our scripture reading. Good morning. The Word of God, Judges 9, verses 8 through 15. Oops. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You, come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men, and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Amen. Thanks, Renee. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? All right, that was tentative at best. I thought the sunshine might have uh, warmed your hearts a little bit, but I see we're still all Seattleites by nature. So my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad that you're with us. We are, uh, as a church, we love to go through books of the Bible. We are currently going through the book of Judges. This is our 10th sermon, our 10th week in the book of Judges, which is halfway through for us. We're going to have 20 sermons total. Just let you know, uh, we are going to push pause on the book of Judges in April to do a little bit of a mini-series on the subject of resurrection, because I don't know if you know this, but Easter is coming soon, and we're going to celebrate the day that uh, our Lord and Savior rose from the dead, the most important day literally in the history of humanity. I know that I am uh, sometimes prone to hyperbole, but I'm not exaggerating when I say that the resurrection of the Son of God is the most important event in human history. So we're going to actually look at that for a few weeks, not just on Easter Sunday, but leading up to Easter Sunday. Then I'm excited to let you know too, in the month of May, we're not exactly pushing pause on judges, but we are kind of freezing for a moment, and we're going to do a four-week sermon series on the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a very tender, a very sweet story, which quite frankly, we could use after all the violence in Judges. Uh, But the book of Ruth actually happens during the period of the Judges. So for us, it's kind of an extension or continuation of the Judges series. Then we'll finish out with Samson and some epilogue, and that'll kind of get us through the summer. So that's a little bit of of a look as where we're going. Today, we're looking at a person named Abimelech, who is not a judge at all. He's not a judge. He's an anti-judge. He is an anti-hero. He's a really bad guy. And so we're looking at Abimelech, the worst king, and I'll just tell you, I'm going to tell you a secret, uh, which won't be secret once I tell it to you, but last fall when I was kind of planning out the sermon series, I kind of outlined it. I said, you know, week one, I want to hit this passage, week two, week three, and here's the passages, here's the characters, here's the themes. So I've got this document, and I said, I want to put a title for each one of these sermons, and I have a document on my computer where there's a title for every single one of these sermons that's a Metallica song. And so this week is Some Kind of Monster. So if, you, if that helps you, if there are any Metallica fans here, uh, if not, forget whatever I just said, and uh, let's prepare our hearts to receive from God's Word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that are given. Um, God, 
for our transformation. We can see both good and bad examples, and God today is a bad example. But my hope and my prayer as we look at this example is that you'd help us to see Jesus, uh, our true king, our true king of kings, the one who uh, has used his positions of power and authority and influence to love and save and heal and redeem us. And so, God, I pray today you'd give us all soft and teachable hearts, I pray, God, that you would help guard my lips, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would um, help all of us to be transformed, to look more like Jesus when we leave than when we came in. Pray this all in his good name. And everybody said, amen. You know, we're looking at this, this story this week about Abimelech, and it's not a particularly familiar one. When, again, when I was planning out this sermon series, I was kind of looking around, poking around, seeing what other churches had done. I, I could not find a sermon on Abimelech. Uh, and so one of the reasons why is it's a very, uh, to be frank, it's a very dark story. It's, it's borderline even depressing. Uh, but what we, what we want to see in this, too, is that even more depressing than the fact that there's this bad king is that the people signed up for it. The people signed up for his bad leadership. We're going to get there in just a second, but it it made me think of a different song, Uh, not Metallica, but that great American theologian, Bob Dylan. Okay, do you have any Bob Dylan fans here? All right. Let me me just quote a little Bob Dylan at you that'll help set us up for the big idea for today. This is from the classic album, Slow Train of Coming. It says this, you may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome except for they tore down ours here in Seattle, so we don't have a dome anymore. You might own guns. Where are my people from Snohomish at? Uh, And you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. Uh Uh-oh. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Dale Kamek was here in the first service. He left after this part. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. Might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. Anyone from Bellevue here? Uh, Might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And all of Bob's people said, amen. (laughs) A lot of truth in those lyrics. And I skipped like, there's like 27 verses. I skipped a lot. But here's really the big idea of where we're going today. We all serve somebody. We all serve somebody. Nobody is neutral. And when we reject the rule of the one true king, we allow ourselves to be ruled by usurpers, oppressors. We all are ruled by someone or something when anybody or anything takes the place of Jesus, the one true king, we find ourselves in slavery. Now, just so we got a lot of ground to cover today, we're going to cover the entirety of chapter nine. I'm going to literally just read this whole story straight through and make a few uh, observations at the very end. But just so we're um, kind of on the same page, we're all tracking together. Let me just briefly set up the story, uh, run through the characters, the main characters we're going to see. The first one obviously is Abimelech, the son of Gideon. 
You'll remember over the last few weeks, we looked at the life of Gideon. He's one of the most famous judges in the book of Judges. He delivered God's people in dramatic fashion. It was a miraculous victory. But then at the end of his life, as as our friend Darren Larson preached last week, pride came into his heart. And Gideon, most people don't realize this, even people who grew up in the church reading the Bible, Gideon has a really terrible end to his story, a really sad, tragic end where he allowed his heart to be filled with pride. The people came to him and said, we want to make you be king. He says, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to be king. But then he allows himself to be basically put into a position of king. We read this uh, from last week's passage in, in 8, 30 through 31. It says, Gideon had 70 sons. That's a lot of sons. I can barely keep up with five kids in the house. His own offspring, for he had many wives. The many wives thing, that's what the pagan kings do. Pagan kings, not God's people, but pagan kings take many wives and have many sons. And it says in verse 31, it individually points out his concubine who was in Shechem. This is a different city. Gideon lived in Ophrah. His concubine in Shechem, he had a girl on the side, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Darren said it last week, but it's worth pointing out. Gideon said, no, 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 I don't want to be the king. Then he had a son named Abimelech. Abba, my dad, Melech, is the king. Oh, I see what's going on there. So we're going to see this guy, Abimelech. He's kind of the illegitimate son, if you will, the illegitimate son of Gideon. We're going to meet a guy named Jotham, who's the youngest son of Gideon. He's the baby of the family, and he's got a pretty important role. We're going to meet a a dude named Gaal. Uh, Gaal is a challenger in town, kind of the new guy in town who comes in and stirs up some controversy. And we're going to meet a guy named Zebul, or as I like to call him, Zeb, which for any of you expectant mothers, if you're looking for a name, I submit that one to you. He's the mayor of Shechem, and he's got a pretty important part to play later in the story. Speaking of the, the, the city of Shechem, we're looking at the setting, a couple, three major important towns to know. Number one is Shechem. This is where Abimelech is from. This is Abimelech's hometown. And actually, it's a really spiritually significant city. If you go back and read the book of Genesis, you see that Abraham had a well there. Jacob had a well there. Joseph, the patriarch, his bones were buried in Shechem. When Joshua led the people of Israel uh, into the promised land for the very first time, they had a big ceremony, a, a covenant renewal ceremony there at Shechem. And it's really tragic to see the way this important city has now really given way to uh, just spiritual decline. So there's Shechem, there's a city called Ophrah, that's Gideon's hometown. So Gideon's from the city of Ophrah, but he had his, his, his kid in the city of Shechem. And then we're also going to see real briefly a city called Thebes, where uh, Abimelech meets his untimely demise. Actually, timely demise when you see how bad he is. So read along with me if you want to. Uh, if you're in your Bible or up on the screen, let's just dive right in. And then when I get to the end, we'll make some kind of final observations. Verse 1, now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, uh, Jerubbaal is another name for Gideon. That's kind of his nickname that means he fights against Baal. So Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, he went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, not his dad, not Gideon's relatives. He went to his mama's side of the family. And he, he, he talked to them. He says, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, what's better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you or that one would rule over you? Remember, I am also your bone and your flesh. So he basically goes to the city of Shechem and says, hey, leaders, you know Gideon had 70 sons, right? That's going to be political chaos. What's better, to have 70 people vying for power or just one person vying for power? Put me, put me in charge. Remember, I'm related to you. I'm your own flesh and blood, and I'm related to Gideon. 
Makes a lot of sense. Verse 3, and his mother's relatives spoke these words on behalf, uh, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. I went and looked those words up in the Hebrew. They're not good words. <laughs> they pretty much mean like worthless and reckless, wild, not good. He went and took money out of the pagan God's temple to go and buy off some dudes who he could then turn into his posse, into his entourage. So what is Abimelech going to do now that he's won the allegiance of the city of Shechem? He wants to be the king. Verse five, he went to his father's house at Ophrah. So he leaves Shechem. He goes over to the city of Ophrah and killed his brothers. The sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. Now you need to understand when, when, when the, the Bible uses that language of on one stone, it's making a point. That's a specific detail. It's not like Gideon and his men ran in and like just fought a battle and kind of killed the brothers in the, in the scrum. No, he lined them up one after another execution style and killed them on this stone. It's almost like we should see uh, even sacrificial overtones or undertones, I guess I should say, that he's putting them up on the altar and just killing them one after another. He killed the brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. So, so one of the brothers survived, the youngest one. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Like, wow. I don't know about his methodology, but boy, he sure gets things done. Political turmoil? Nah, we got one strong leader. Let's put him in place. Let's just, just imagine that. Now, when it was told to Jotham, verse 7, this younger brother, what happened? He's, he's shocked. But it says, He went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And he starts to tell a fable. The trees, once upon a time, the trees went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, olive tree, um, that's a symbol of health and well-being. The olive tree was very practically useful in the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, you, would, you, would, you could eat the olives, obviously. You could use the oil for cooking. They would use the oil a lot for either medicinal or just you know, skin care, hair care. Uh, you could use the oil to light your lamps. I mean, the olive, is, this is a symbol of you know, health and well-being. So in this parable, that's kind of what it stands for, this, this fable. They went to the olive tree and said, you reign over us, you be king. But the olive tree said, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? Like, no, it's not worth my time. And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. Uh, uh, figs are, in the ancient Near Eastern world, a symbol of, like, delight and decadence. This would have been the, the dessert at the time, right? Uh, I, I know somebody, actually, a, a part of our church, who has fig trees planted in their yard. They brought them from uh, his home country overseas and says it's, like, just the best thing you could possibly eat. I'm like, well, I, I need to try one because I've had a fig newton. It was just okay. And... But, but this is a symbol of delight and joy. The fig tree said, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? 
So the tree said to the vine, we've got grapes, you make wine. This is, this is health. Uh, they would use wine medicinally. They would drink wine because oftentimes clean sources of water could be hard to come by. Uh, they would use wine, obviously, to gladden the heart. The tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? They're running out of options. So then the trees come to the bramble, the sticker bush, the, the tumbleweed, the thing that's only used is to burn a fire and cook your food over it. They came to the bramble, said, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to them, well, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, if you really want, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, if you're setting me up, then let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So our boy Jotham tells this, this story, this almost children's fable. Jotham continues. Now he starts explaining it. And he's going to pronounce a curse here. Verse 16. Now therefore, you men of Shechem, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal or Gideon, if you dealt well with him and his household, his family, and done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father, remember my father, he fought for you. He risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian and you've risen up this day against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem because he's your relative. You kind of get the sense, you know where Jotham's going with this, right? He's like, you know, hey, if you did good, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you know, when my dad fought for you and then you like rose up and killed all of his kids, if you have acted with good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, well then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. It's like, you guys deserve each other. <laughs> but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And then Jotham ran away <laughs> and fled and went to Be'er and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Smart move, probably. Uh, rather offensive scene to kind of stand up and say, y'all are a bunch of fools. You and Abimelech have acted treacherously. You deserve each other. And may fire come out from both of you and you both destroy each other. And peace out. Uh, verse 22. So Abimelech ruled. Um, in the Hebrew, that is a unique word. There's a, ru a word for ruling that's uh, basically malach, which is related to the word melech, like to, to rule as a king. This word is a different Hebrew word. It's only used a few times in the Old Testament, and it has much more of an overtone of like controlling. He ruled. He, he domineered over Israel for three years. For three years, he's the boss. For three years, he's the king. For three years, he's in charge. And get this, in verse 23, Underline this, highlight this, do something with this. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. I just want to highlight, I don't have time to go fully. There's a, there's a whole extra sermon right there in that verse. But in case you're wondering, friends, yes, God's sovereignty, his authority, his control is over all things, including even evil spirits. God is not the author of evil. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. God himself never does evil. But if God so chooses for his own good purposes 
He can even use an evil spirit. This happens three times. It's rare, but it happens three times in the Bible. And actually, interestingly enough, all three times, it's to remove a wicked, oppressive king. And I know there's a ton there, probably a lot of questions. If you have questions, I would love your emails. My email address is shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. Send them on. (laughs) That joke never gets old. I love that joke. I use that like once a month. It's so good. All right. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So they start to, uh, kind of getting conflicty. They're not, they're not digging it so much. It's been three years. We're not feeling it. And it says, so that, verse 24, here's, here's why God did this. So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Gideon might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The Bible explicitly tells us that God did this so that there would be justice. So that there would be justice in this situation. These wicked men put Abimelech into a place where he could execute wicked, you know, wicked execution of his 70 brothers. And God says, no, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to bring this back around on both of them. Verse 25, the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops and they robbed all who passed by them along that way and it was told to Abimelech. So the men of Shechem, they're kind of sick of Abimelech. They start to put men out in the mountains to rob and to do kind of this treacherous stuff. Let me give you, this is not the best analogy, but you know how sometimes when we read about in the news today that um, Iran is mad at Turkey because the U.S. had airplanes fly over a no-fly zone and the countries are kind of in conflict? You know, those sorts of things that you read about and, and, and unless you're deeply embedded, you don't really fully understand. It's kind of like that. There's political intrigue happening. The leaders are mad at the other leader and they shouldn't be in these mountaintops. It's kind of like that. Verse 26 we meet a new, a new guy, Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. By the way, the name Gaal, it's a name, but it also is a word that just means um, abhorrent or nasty. Like it's not even, like it's just a word that just gets used all over the place for like just nasty or loathsome. So in case you wonder what this guy, you know, what the author of Judges thinks about this guy, Gaal, the, ju- the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. Oh, who's this nasty guy? We like him. <laughs> it's just like the book of Judges is like the breaking bad of the Bible. Like it just keeps getting worse. They went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them, means made wine, and held a party. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. So they have a drunken roast of Abimelech that he wasn't invited to. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, says, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem? I won't do that the whole time. But you got to hear it in that voice. They're, they're, they're plastered, and they're just making fun of Abimelech. Who is this guy? And who are we that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? We'll come back to Zebul in a minute. We should serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve, why should we serve Abimelech? And then he starts, you know, like drunk people are prone to do, overestimating his own strength. Would that this people were under my hand. Oh, if only, if only I was in charge, uh, then I would remove Abimelech and I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and, and come out. Like, come at me, bro. Like, this is, this is fully what's happening here. 
I'm just, this is the new Aaron Revised Standard Version. I could throw a football a quarter mile. <laughs> so Gaal's drunk. He's talking a big game. He's, he's, he's bragging. I want to kick Abimelech out. So when Zebul, the, the ruler of the city, he's the mayor, Zeb, our buddy Zeb, when he heard this, his anger was kindled. Hey, he's talking bad about Abimelech. He's talking bad about me. It's likely that Zebul is on the payroll of Abimelech. He's the mayor of the town and Abimelech's trying to rule all of Israel. So he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, hey, Listen, Gal, the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem and they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, here's, here's the plan. I want you to go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. And then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And then when, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. You can just take care of business. Abimelech thinks that's a good plan. Verse 34, Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. So he's got four groups of men. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. Now the gate of the city, again, in the ancient Near East, that's where business is conducted. That's where politics take place. Of course, Gaal would go to that spot because that's where important people hang out. So he's hanging out there. He's got his men. And all of a sudden, something moving over there. When Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, the mayor who's hanging out there too, hey, uh, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, no, you, uh, you mistake the, the shadow of the mountains for men. You're seeing things, Zeb. You, you, or uh, uh, Gal, you, you had a lot to drink. You might, be, you might be nursing a hangover. You're seeing things, buddy. Gal spoke again, said, no, look, look. People are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Like, no, I can, I can see the wizard's tree. I'm not seeing things. I see a group of men coming down. So Zeb said to him, well, where's your mouth now? You who said, who's Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now. Fight with them. Go. You talked a big game. Let's see you back it up, buddy. Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled before him. That's called getting your tail handed to you. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah. He just went and hung out. Like it was such a, it was such a beat down that Abimelech didn't even really need to go finish it out. He went and lived at Aramah and Zebul, the mayor of the town, drove out Gael and his relatives so they could not dwell at Shechem. Now Abimelech has had his pride wounded, hasn't he? Uh, if there's one thing that bad leaders cannot abide, it is being mocked. So how do you think Abimelech responds? Well, that was good. I'm glad we took care of Gael and all those, all those people who were with him. Enough's enough. Everyone back to as you were. Oh, yeah. Not quite. Because vengeance is never satisfied, is it? It's never about equality. It's never about, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's like, no, you harmed me this much. I'm, gonna, I'm coming after you. This happens, um, it sounds silly, but we see this in our culture in, in road rage incidents, Right? Somebody cuts you off and you ram them or run them over or pull a gun or something just so incredibly over the top. When rage really sets in, we can kind of lose our minds. That's what's going to happen with Abimelech. On the following day, verse 42, the people went out into the field. So this is just the people of the city. Like, hey, what the heck happened? 
some sort of battle yesterday. Like, let's go out in the field and see what happened. Maybe there's some, some you know, swords or treasure or things that we can collect. And Abimelech got told about it. Hey, there's people out in the field. Like, they're trying to check out and see what happened. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming. The people, the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city so they couldn't get back in, while two other companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. They just slaughtered them. These people are are, are basically rubbernecking. We just want to go see what was happening. Abimelech says, no, you don't even come and look. I'm going to kill you too. So then Abimelech fought against the rest of the city all that day. He captured the city. He killed the people who were in it. He razed the city, tore it down, burned it down, and sowed it with salt, which is a curse to say, may nothing ever grow on this land ever again. This is just absolute, just loss of composure, loss of mind. Verse 46, when the leaders of the tower of Shechem, that's kind of the center part of the city, heard it, they entered the stronghold like, "Uh uh-oh, Abimelech has lost his mind. We need to go into the stronghold. Abimelech was told that all of the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman. He and all the people were with him. He took an ax in his hand and cut down, here it is, a bundle of brushwood, a bramble a useless pile of sticks and took it and laid it up on his shoulder. And he said to all of his men, hey, what you saw me do, hurry up and do what I've done too. So every one of the people cut down a bundle of sticks. They followed Abimelech. They put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all of the people of the tower of Shechem died about a thousand men and women. I mean, just, you see the, the, the depravity here. Let's kill them all, men and women. Burn the tower down. Verse 50, then Abimelech went to Thebes. This is another nearby city. He's like, I'm not done fighting. I'm not done executing my wrath and my rage on those who would dare to mock me, to malign me. Let's go to the next city. Let's teach them a lesson too. He encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Hey, let's do it again. What we just did in Shechem, let's do it again here in Thebes. But verse 53, look at this. A certain woman, don't even know her name, threw an upper millstone. That's a huge rock used to grind grain. Threw a millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Okay. Talk about the sovereignty of God, right? She's got one shot. There's fire happening. There's battle happening. She's like, boom, direct hit. All right. Verse 54, he called quickly to the young man. This is um, Abimelech. To the young man, his armor bearer, and said, look at the cowardice. Look at this chicken. Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. The young man thrust him through and he died. (laughs) Verse 55. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Just like, well, that was, all right, we'll see you guys later. Just kind of get like the sense of like just the record needle scratch and just, oh, angry dude's dead. I I guess we'll just go back home then. 
Verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all of the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some of you are like, why did I come to church today? Um, some of you are like, is this church always this negative? Yes. No. Start thinking about this, though. Again, going back to the very beginning of the story where the people, they signed up for this. The people of Shechem said, yeah, let's, let's make him our king. Let's make him our ruler. And it really kind of got me thinking, in many ways, we're not that different, are we? We are prone to sign up for bad leadership. In, in all sorts of different varieties. I'm, I'm not just talking about, you know, the political side of things, but in, in, in our job. People who are not godly leaders often rise to positions of prominence and power, don't they? Sometimes in abusive relationships. Sometimes in churches. Wicked and abusive men, people, women, find their way into positions of leadership and authority. Why is that? Let me, let me offer to you three observations. First is this. Everybody wants to be led. No, everybody needs to be led. Human beings, we are created in the image and likeness of God. We have, uh, as men and women, we have dignity, value, worth, power. But human beings are not independent beings. We are dependent, are we not? The Apostle Paul uh, says that in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. We are dependent upon him. The author of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of our power. If, if we're not connected to God as the source of life, we have nothing. We need to be led. We want and need to be led. It is essential for us, for the, our character and for our nature. I came across an article this week. I've been doing a lot of studying and reading in the last few weeks, studying like power dynamics. And I came across an experiment that was conducted in the 1960s and 70s. In the 60s and 70s, the, the, here in the United States, some scientists and some psychologists were trying to figure out why would the soldiers in Nazi Germany do so many wicked things just because their leaders said so? Did they not know it was wicked? Did they, did they not realize what they were doing? Was there something in just German culture that led them to want to just follow? And so they conducted a series of experiments. They took a man, and they sat him in a chair, and they attached electrodes to him. He was part of the experiment. He, he signed up for this part. But then they brought other people in that, that didn't know, and they said, we need you to ask this guy some questions, and every time he gets a question wrong, you have to deliver an electric shock. And, and this guy would answer questions wrong on purpose, they said, every time he does another one wrong, you have to increase the voltage. And it went from a mildly painful shock to literally could kill you. And all that they did was, when the people started getting hit, I don't, I don't want to do it. I want to deliver the shock. They would bark orders at them. You have to. It is your responsibility. It is your duty. You must follow through. You agreed to this. You signed up for this. And they got people, regular Joes, moms and dads, blue collar workers, to deliver lethal voltage shocks just because someone told them to do it. And what they concluded was, this isn't wartime, this isn't anything as serious, but we're just so desirous of leadership because we just, it's in our nature, it's in our DNA, we want to be led. Second reason why I think that um, we sign up for bad leadership is good leaders are hard to find. Good leaders can be hard to find, amen? Uh, you know the saying, 
power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't think that that is a 100% all the time true axiom. Um, and actually, I would, I would submit to you, you, you need to look no further than parenting because parents have incredible power over this little infant child and yet a majority of the time the parents use that power and authority for the well-being of the child. But it is true that power is a dangerous thing. Power is a dangerous thing. Many well-meaning people get into positions of leadership, authority, and power, and it does. It has a corrupting influence. Good leaders can be hard to find. And number three, why do we sign up for bad leadership? Friends, there's something broken within our, within our own hearts where we are drawn to leadership distortions, are we not? Raise your hand if you've ever felt powerless. Okay, just any time in your life. You ever felt powerless? Somebody speaks up, somebody's got power, they've got strength, they've got authority, and you're like, that, I want that. You ever felt uncertain? I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the stock market. I don't know what's going to happen in my relationship. I don't know what's going to happen in my family. And somebody speaks up and they've got all sorts of certainty. I know this. I know that. Here's what's going to happen. Here's where we're going. We love that. We crave that. Weakness craves power. Uncertainty craves certainty. We long for those things. But again, we very often long for them in wrong ways. Wrong people, sinful people, us responding sinfully. We're in a leadership crisis in our world. Uh, At this point of the sermon, if you've been here for any length of time at all, you know where I'm going, right? Bimelech's a bad king. He's a very bad king. We need a good king. We sign up for bad leadership. Where are we going, friends? (laughs) Jesus, right? Like the three-year-olds in Sunday school could get that answer right. But but hear me on this. I want to say something because... Again, you're like, well, yeah, obviously the answer is Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's the problem with Jesus. When Jesus actually showed up, God in the flesh, people missed him. People did not recognize that Jesus was the leader we truly need. Now, why is that? I believe that people are drawn to these kind of two dimensions of leadership. One is the the authority leader, right? Right? Kind of your typical CEO, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, I will lead you. People like that, and a certain group of people respond to that. There's also another type of leadership, though, that's the very, like, vulnerable, humble, peer. You know, uh, you could kind of think of this as almost like, not trying to speak pejoratively, but kind of the hippie guru, like, hey, let's all just walk this path together. People love that type of vulnerability, and will follow those types of leaders. Jesus showed up and was a maddening combination of the two, and, and the majority of people missed him. Actually, in John chapter 5, he's saying to the Pharisees, like, like, I'm here and you reject me, but if somebody else came in God's name, you'd totally follow them. When Jesus actually showed up, the people missed him. Now, we have the luxury of looking back through history and being like, oh, I wouldn't have missed Jesus. But friends, I would submit to you, probably a lot of us would, miss, would have missed Jesus if we'd have been there. Andy Crouch, uh, an author who I've, I've been reading uh, several of his books lately, um, this one is called Strong and Weak where he explores these, uh, these dynamics of authority and vulnerability. He talks about when Jesus showed up, he says this, when, when the true image bearer came up, the image of the invisible God, he came with unparalleled authority. More capacity for meaningful action than any other person who has lived. Is that true, friends? Is that true? Jesus came with power and authority? 
It says when he, when, he, when he preached in the synagogues, the people were like, wow, this guy, he doesn't speak like the other rabbis. He speaks with authority. Uh, it says that he, he spoke and the storm died down. And it says that his disciples were more scared than they were of the storm because who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus commanded demons to flee. Jesus spoke uh, healing into people's bodies. Jesus had amazing authority and power and strength. And yet he too was born naked, as dependent and therefore vulnerable as any human being. There's times where Jesus spoke, you know, like with the woman at the well, a, a very sexually promiscuous woman, very looked down upon in particular in that culture. And how did Jesus speak to her? With power and authority and you need to repent. No, he spoke to her with tenderness, vulnerability. It's not just that Jesus was born naked. He died naked on a cross. Nails through his hands and feet, a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus displayed not just strength, but incredible vulnerability. Andy Crouch's author, he, 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 he talks about Jesus, but he also talks about us. As we're created in the image and likeness of God, we, we carry some of that authority as well, right? We're, we're created, we have, we've, been, we've been given dominion over the earth. The, the, the book of Genesis says that God gave a commandment to mankind, have authority over the earth. We have these amazing brains that we can do engineering things, you know, like uh, you know, build a skyscraper or build an atomic bomb. We have power, we have authority, we have opposable thumbs for crying out loud. But we also have incredible weakness and vulnerability. We're dependent upon our moms for way longer than any other mammal is. Any of you guys following this giraffe pregnancy thing that they're, I think it's a fraud. I think that giraffe is just trying to get hits on her blog. Uh, seems like she's been pregnant for like 14 years, never going to give birth. But you know, when that, when that giraffe gives birth, conspiracy theory. When that giraffe gives birth, within a few hours, that giraffe is going to stand up and be walking around. None of your babies ever did that. And if they did, you call the government because something weird is going down, right? Some X-File stuff right there. We are very vulnerable. We are very dependent upon our moms, our dads, upon many other people to even, even make it to the age of five years old. It's pretty miraculous. So this author, Andy Crouch, he kind of offers us a, a little bit of a diagram, which, again, I didn't come up with any of this. It's all in the book. I'll link to it on our, on our website. But I just want to share with you. I want you to imagine this, this kind of a T, these four quadrants. And the, the vertical axis he, he describes as the authority axis. This is the one of power, strength, of authority. And then the horizontal line is the one that represents vulnerability and weakness and gentleness. If you have authority without any vulnerability, just power, just strength, what you have is exploitation. Somebody has given power, someone has given authority, there's no weakness, there's no vulnerability, they're going to take advantage of and exploit others. Inversely, if you have vulnerability without any authority, well, this is where suffering and abuse come in. This is where people are taken advantage of. They're, they're vulnerable, they're weak, and they don't have the authority to do anything about it. This is... This is uh, people in abusive relationships. If you have neither authority nor vulnerability, you're not exercising your God-given power nor your, your God-given uh, vulnerability, well, then you're just withdrawn. 
You're not being open with anybody. You're not being vulnerable with anybody. You're not leading. You're not invested. You're just withdrawn. You're just checked out. But where authority and vulnerability come together in the right proportion, in the right tension, well, then there's human flourishing. I think that um, in our day and age, we have a leadership crisis. And many people are prone to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Um, I, I myself, uh, this last week, I, I'll just confess to you, um, between preparing this text and preparing this material to preach and a series of meetings that I had this week with pastors from all over the country, I would say to you that we are literally in a leadership crisis. And this isn't something that's new to our day and age. It's, it's been going on as long as there have been sinful humans. I was speaking with these pastors, they were listing uh, church after church after church where the pastor used his position of power, influence, and authority to take advantage of the people, whether that's financially, whether that was to have a sexual affair, whether that was to just prop up his own power and prominence and prestige so that no other leaders could keep him in check. And friends, I will just confess to you, I kind of didn't want to preach this passage this week. It was frightening to me. It was upsetting to me. Some would say that the solution is to then just jettison all power and authority and we're only just going to ever lead through weakness. But friends, I don't believe that that is a true picture of what the Bible says. When authority and vulnerability come together, we see flourishing. And again, nowhere is that more clear than our Savior Jesus. You compare Jesus to Abimelech. He's the, he's the anti-Abimelech, right? He's the Antimelech, if, uh, if I can use that. Credit to Josh Mullen for that one. But listen, listen. Abimelech used his power and authority to harm people. But Jesus used his power and his authority to heal people, to redeem them. Abimelech gained his position of leadership through coercion and force. But Jesus demonstrated his true position of leadership by sacrifice and service. When he was mocked, Bimelech schemed and fumed. But when Jesus was mocked, he remained silent. He took it. When he was attacked, Abimelech lashed out in vengeance, seeking to destroy anyone who dared attack him. But when Jesus was attacked, you remember what he did? He cried out in forgiveness, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The very people who were pounding the nails into his hands and feet. Jesus cried out in forgiveness. Abimelech, when he died, he showed his true cowardice. Stab me with a sword so the people don't talk bad about me. But Jesus, when he died, he showed his true power and grace because he saved us by dying in our place for our sins, dying a death that we deserve. And maybe best of all, Abimelech's rule was temporary. Three years of authoritarian power, exploitation, and abuse. But the good news is that our King Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. Because on the third day after his crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he has authority over death itself. And right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling and reigning over all of creation. And one day, the Bible says that he will return and we'll see his kingdom established in full and we'll get to be a part of an eternal kingdom of peace. Is that good news to anyone this morning? That's our Savior, Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he's done. And that's what he's inviting us into. 
Let me close with, with these couple of thoughts. Some of you are in the suffering quadrant. You have vulnerability and no authority. And I would say two things to you. Number one, Jesus cares. He's experienced what you've experienced and he wants to give you strength and power and authority within yourself. But second of all, would you please reach out for help? Some of you have suffered in abusive relationships. Some of you have suffered in, in, in whatever ways that, that come to mind right now. Would you talk to me, one of the other pastors, one of the other leaders here, reach out for help so that we can come alongside you and others could use what power that they have for your well-being. Some of you are in the exploiting quadrant We all have areas of leadership, influence. You might not be a a CEO, but you all have an area where you lead somewhere. And some of you, when you look at the life of Abimelech, you're like, yeah, I'm I'm concerned. I see some Abimelech in myself where you're using your power and your authority to harm other people. To you today, I say repent. Bow your knee before the one who is the true king, the one who truly possesses all power and authority, and let him rework you change you, transform you so that you can learn how to truly lead like Jesus. And some of you are just withdrawn. Some of you are wielding neither power nor vulnerability. Some of you are are just checked out. Friends, can I say, we need you. You are needed in this world where abusive people very often rise to positions of power and prominence. You are needed. Get off the sidelines. Don't discount yourself. Don't say, I've got nothing good to give. You are created in the image and likeness of God with unique gifts and talents and abilities. Our church needs you. Our communities need you. Your workplace needs you. Your family needs you. With whatever strength you have to lead from a place of brokenness and vulnerability, please check in. We need you. Some of you here today are, are, are not Christians. You're co- you came because someone invited you and, and, and all of this talk is, is maybe intriguing or concerning to you, but here's the invitation today. We all serve somebody. Bob Dylan was 100% right on. He said, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. I invite you today to serve King Jesus, the one who is the true leader that our hearts actually long for. Don't miss him. Don't miss him today. Would you pray with me? God, I ask that you would help all of us in our hearts to turn to Jesus now. When we see this uh, just scoundrel, this unbelievably awful leader of Abimelech, God, I ask and pray that you would help us to recognize where we ourselves are prone to follow distortions of leadership and that we would run, we would run to Jesus for safety, for security, for strength, the one who can be strong for us and vulnerable with us. Jesus, I thank you that the the Bible says that you experienced every temptation and weakness and trial that we experience, and so you empathize with us. I pray that reality would be true in our hearts and our lives today. And as we turn our attention to responding to you, God, however we need to respond, whether that's reaching out for help, whether that's repenting of our abuses of power, or whether that's just simply getting involved at all, God, I pray that we would respond out of an overflow of the love that you've given to us. Pray this in Jesus' good name, amen.
Church, I want to invite us into a time of response now. We're going to respond as we do in a few ways. The first we're going to respond is through giving. This is something we do every week. If you're a guest or a visitor, please know you're not obligated to give, but we would invite you to give as worship to God. If you're a part of this church, give to support the work of the ministry here. Give to support the work of the ministry that we support overseas and partner with, uh, even locally here. But most importantly, check your heart. Give as worship. God, I'm going to do this as an act of love and, and worship to you. If you need information on how to text to give or to give online, that information is there on the screen or in your handout. I'm going to read some discussion questions as we uh, begin our time of response. In a moment here, we're going to welcome our younger students class in to, to join us for this time of response. A few things to talk about. What from the story of Abimelech was surprising, confusing, interesting, helpful, exciting, I don't know, to you? Number two, what do you think of, of Crouch, Andy Crouch, uh, author of this book? What do you think of his idea that flourishing comes from being both strong and weak? Which one of the unhealthy quadrants might you find yourself in most often and why? Number three, how is Jesus the ultimate picture of both strength and weakness, of authority and vulnerability? And number four, how does the servant leadership of Jesus heal your heart where there has been leadership wounds? And how does it inspire you to lead better? A couple things to pray about too because we want to be a praying church. Would you pray that God would help all of us use whatever positions of authority we have to build up and love those whom we lead? And then read Revelation twenty two twenty, where Jesus said, I'm coming soon. And all the people said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Would you pray that Jesus would return soon so that we would see healthy leadership, uh, the fullness of the kingdom of God here on this earth? Pray that prayer. That's a good prayer for us to pray. Come Lord Jesus. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's table in a moment here. The volunteers will begin passing out the elements. I'll invite you to hold on to that. This is for Christians. If you're a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to join us at the table. Um, if you're not a Christian, we'd invite you to do one of two things. You may abstain and just reflect during this time on what, what this is all about. And, or second, even better, we just invite you, give your life to Jesus. Trust in him. Join us at the table. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about this meal that we're about to celebrate. He says that the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The, the breaking of the bread reminds us of Jesus' vulnerability, his brokenness on the cross. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim his vulnerability and weakness until he comes again in power and authority. Then there's an invitation to reflect. We need to check ourselves. We need to check our own hearts. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Friends, I pray you take that seriously. Let's look inside. Ask God to... To, to show us what we need to see. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're gonna sing as well. Elizabeth and the team are gonna lead us in a time of singing. The, the first song is a simple prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And then the, the other songs are actually gonna speak about God as our king, God as our ruler, the one who possesses true authority. And so may our hearts and our attention be turned to the true king, to the true Lord. May our allegiance be to him above all else. Let me pray for us and then uh, you can celebrate the Lord's table as you're ready and then when you're ready, stand to your feet and sing with us. God, I, I pray for this time of response. 
May our response be heartfelt. May it be genuine. God, we all probably need to respond somewhat differently in, in, in different ways. And so I pray that you would lead and guide and direct us. I pray, God, that you would help us to see the strength and the, the vulnerability of Jesus and to receive that grace and then also to follow in his footsteps. We pray all of this in his name. And everyone said, amen.